Friends, for the last three weeks, we have been sharing together and unpacking our congregation's new vision and mission statement, which reminds us in part that we are a church that seeks to be a Christ-centered, open and welcoming community, addressing the challenges of our time. And each of the last three Sundays, we've spent time reflecting on and unpacking each of those three phrases individually. Now this morning, and beginning for this fall season, we're going to be reading passages almost exclusively out of the Gospel of Matthew, some of the teachings and stories of Jesus, with the hope that it helps us better understand how it is we actually understand and live out how we practice our faith as a Christ-centered, opening, open and welcoming community, addressing the challenges of our time. What does Scripture have to say to us about that? What does Jesus specifically have to say to us about that? And so this morning, we begin in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read from the beginning, verses 1 through 14. Listen to God's word for us today. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it'd be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. (laughs) Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the ones, to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does not he leave, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he receives, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer. And let all God's people say, Amen. Well, as often happens, just in these short 14 verses, Jesus packs in an awful lot more than we could possibly take time to reflect on or unpack today. As the disciples are jockeying for position again, wondering who will be the greatest, really wondering who among them will be the greatest, and Jesus reminding them that it is the one who is childlike in their humility of faith 
that would be the greatest. And be sure not to put a stumbling block in front of any of them that they might go astray or be led astray. And all of that drives Jesus to this final point, this parable of the lost sheep, which is where I want to spend some time this morning. This week, as I was reading and rereading the passage, I noticed something that honestly I've never noticed before. That right before the parable of the lost sheep, did you notice what Jesus said at the beginning of verse 12? Jesus asked the disciples and the others in the audience that day, what do you think? What do you think? Which is curious. Jesus here is not just simply laying down the law of the land or declaring what they should believe or how they behave. He's extending an invitation. Hey, what do you think? Which makes sense because what he tells next is a parable, a story. And like any expression of art, whether a story or a painting or a sculpture or a performance of some kind, we all know that when there is an expression of art before us, we each bring our own perspectives, our life experiences to the table as we look at and reflect on what's before us, which means even though we're all looking at the same thing or reading the same thing, we're each going to have some different views about it. I mean, you've probably experienced standing in an art museum next to somebody else looking at the same painting on the wall. And if you turn to that person and say, what do you think? <laughs> You're likely to discover that he or she sees something very different than you do, experiences something very different than you do. That's the beauty of a story, a parable, or some other expression of art. It gives us an opportunity to turn it around, to look at it from different perspectives or through different lenses. And here, as Jesus begins this parable, he invites them to consider it from the various places from which they come. Hey, he says, what do you think? Because this parable, this story, like any good story, provides a way for us to insert ourselves, our own life experience, into the middle of it, even though there's a lot about the story that would be unfamiliar to us. That's true of any good story. Let me give you an example. For me, Ever since I was a kid, I have been deeply compelled to and attracted by the stories of Rocky Balboa, the heavyweight champion of the world. Now, I know the movies in some ways are formulaic, they're silly even, but from the time I watched the very first movie in the 1970s as a kid, and to be fair, I don't know how it won the Oscar for Best Picture that year, but somehow it did. But I was hooked, and I have been hooked on those movies ever since. There's something about the story that gets me, that gets me. Recently, Miriam and I were on a flight that was long enough that we could watch a movie on the little screen in the seat back in front of us. And at one point, Miriam turned and looked at me and said, What are you watching? And I said, I'm watching the latest Rocky movie. Why? And she said, Because you're crying. Yeah? And then I got up later to go to the bathroom, and the guy sitting in the seat behind me was also crying because he was also watching the Rocky movie. <laughs> now, look, the truth is, there's a lot that I don't relate to. I'm not Italian. 
I'm not from Philadelphia, though I do love a good cheesesteak. And there's nothing particularly about my physique that screams heavyweight champion of the world. So there's a lot there that doesn't apply. And yet, I do get it. I do get this idea about having a calling, a passion, so deep that it drives a disciplined approach to trying to follow that passion throughout your life. I do get what it feels like to get knocked down onto the mat by the circumstances of life and to try to screw up the courage and the resilience to get back up again and keep moving forward. I get that. And if I'm honest, I get the desire to go from a slothful couch potato to the pyramid of physical fitness just in the span of a three and a half minute musical montage. <laughs> Don't we all get that part of the story too? And when we look at the parable of the lost sheep, it's also true that none of us probably have much experience in being a shepherd. Though to be fair, in northern Colorado, I know some of you have been ranchers or are ranchers. You've got some experience, but we really don't get what it means to be a shepherd. We certainly don't get what it means to be a sheep. There's a lot about the story that could seem foreign to us, and yet we do get what it feels like to be lost. I know what it feels like to be lost. And I know what it feels like to be found. And I've had the experience of trying to seek out and find others who are lost. There are parts of this story that we get because there are parts of the story that get us. Now, as Jesus is relating this parable before the disciples and the others in front of him, it's important to realize that a flock of 100 sheep in first century Palestine would have been a substantial-sized flock. This would have indicated a certain level of affluence or wealth or success, I guess, an odd word to use. But by the metrics that they would have used in their society, this was a significant flock of sheep. And so to that audience, it would have seemed strange that the shepherd would risk the safety of the 99 in order to go after the one. After all, it's just, it's just one out of 99. I mean, that's a, a reasonable risk to take in managing 100 is that, yeah, once in a while you're going to lose one. That would just seem to be reasonable. It's like a retail store builds into its margins of its annual sales projections a certain amount of loss through shoplifting or damage or whatever else. If you got a big store, you know you're going to lose some things once in a while, and that's fine. You don't lose a lot of sleep over that. I thought through that lens this week about our own church here at First Presbyterian. We know nationally that more than half, substantially more than half of the churches in the United States today have 100 or fewer members in them. And so at least by that metric, we're a pretty good-sized church here at First Presbyterian. Look around at all these people gathered here, even on a holiday weekend. And so it would seem reasonable to think, yeah, we're going to lose a few sheep once in a while. Ah, that's okay. We're doing pretty well. Look around. We've got a pretty good-sized flock here. But that's not the way that Jesus approaches it. And I think Jesus is inviting us not to approach it that way either. As I was reflecting on Jesus' role as the Good Shepherd this week, I turned for a moment to a different passage of Scripture, a different story entirely, through this new lens. 
Do you remember in the Gospel of John, after Jesus rises from the dead, Jesus appears before the disciples in a locked room. He really spooks them. They're thrilled, of course, that Jesus has risen from the dead, but also terrified at what's happening. They don't quite get it. But do you remember what happens? Thomas isn't there when Jesus first appears to the disciples. He's somewhere else. He's astray. And so what does Jesus do? He comes back a second time and appears before the disciples with Thomas now in the room. Now, we tend to read that story, I've tended to read it in the past, through the lens mostly of doubting Thomas, what that story says about who Thomas is. But now I'm thinking about what it says about who Jesus is. That Jesus cares enough about Thomas. I mean, you've got these other ten disciples who are all rock stars. But Jesus cares enough about the one who was astray that he comes back a second time and makes sure that he reconnects Thomas to the rest of the community. That's what this good shepherd is really all about. It reminds us that even here at the church, we could spend our time focusing on our successes, the things that are going well, the big picture, and we could lose track in that of the one who is astray, the one who's lost. It reminds us that we need to commit ourselves to this idea that no single person is expendable. Everyone's worthy of being pursued, even to the risk of everything and everyone else. It's in that pursuit, it's in that finding that we discover the rejoicing that occurs when the one is brought back home. So why do sheep get lost, after all? Why do some of us get lost? Well, there's lots that happens in our lives where we might experience feeling lost in general, adrift or unmoored, particularly and unfortunately, especially in relationship to a church family. Sometimes people have to work on the weekends because they're trying to make ends meet. They're working several jobs. It's just the reality of the lives that they're in. Sometimes people are raising children Children who are busy during the week, even busy on the weekends. Sometimes raising children who have learning disabilities or other special needs that makes it awkward or uncomfortable for them to try to integrate into the life of a local church. Sometimes people are experiencing their own issues with mobility or health challenges that makes it uncomfortable or even impossible for them to join into a church community or to feel at home. Other times people are dealing with the stigma of mental illness, their own or of someone they love, and that stigma is perceived to be experienced in the community, whether it actually is or not. It can make someone afraid of being out in public, out with others. Some people in this increasingly mobile world are having to travel more to be connected to kids and grandkids in order to work remotely or at a distance. And sometimes, unfortunately, the church has become a place where people don't feel welcome themselves because of their own perspectives, their own views, their own beliefs, their own politics, and think, well, the church wouldn't welcome me because I think this, or I vote this way, or pray this way, or love this way, and so I wouldn't be welcome. And so they self-select to be astray, to be lost. This last week, I was reading some research that's put out by a guy named Ryan Burge. 
he does a lot of research about the kind of big picture demographics of the church, uh, the whole ecumenical church in the United States. And he published an article I found interesting called Religion Has Become a Luxury Good. What he means by that is that as he's been tracking the trajectory of the demographics of people who show up on Sunday mornings, people who are sitting in the pews, like us, it has increasingly and disproportionately become people who have, to put it in his words, done life right. That is, their lives are going well by most measures of society. This is how he explains it. The results of the research, he says, are hard to ignore and should sound some alarms for people of faith who are concerned about the larger state of our society. Increasingly, religion has become the enclave for those who've lived a, quote, proper life, gotten a college degree, earned a middle-class income, have gotten married and had children. If you check all these boxes, the likelihood that you go to church is much higher. If you don't check one or more of those boxes, the likelihood that you don't go to church is much higher. And this is troublesome. Religion at its best is a place where people are supposed to come from a variety of economic, social, racial, and political backgrounds to find common ground in our shared faith. It's a place to build bridges to folks who are different from you. And unfortunately, in a lot of American religion, this is not what it looks like. Instead, the church has become a hospital for the healthy. That line really struck me. The church has become a hospital for the healthy, an echo chamber for folks who have done everything quote-unquote right by society's measurements, which means that it's seeming less and less inviting to those who are doing life a different way or for whom life has done them a different way. Now, Ryan writes, do I think that houses of worship have done this on purpose? No. But they also haven't actively refuted this narrative. That is, they haven't tried to change the narrative. That church can be a comfortable place for people who live a comfortable life. But if you're on the margins for any number of reasons, for a wide variety of reasons, that your life hasn't gone the way that you hoped, or life hasn't happened in the way that you hoped, or you've made decisions that you hoped you hadn't made, you can feel excluded from society in general, and unfortunately from the church in particular. You can feel lost or astray. And that ought to convict us, and that ought to encourage us to take a close look at who's here, and like Jesus did with those first disciples, who is not here? Who needs to be seen and sought out? It's for this reason that I'm inviting some of our church officers this year, our elders and our deacons, to take time this fall to really pay attention to who they have not seen or who perhaps feels unseen and to take time to seek them out, to let them know that they're missed, they're loved, and encourage them to reconnect. Now, to be honest, I recognize that that work, those connections, can be awkward. You call somebody and say, hey, friend, I haven't seen you in a while. And they might say, well, I've been there every week. I don't know why you haven't seen me. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I sit over here, and you sit over there, and I just didn't see you. Or the person says, yeah, I haven't been there for a few months because 
we were diagnosed with cancer in our household, and we're dealing with a lot of struggles, and we just felt awkward sharing that. Or some other circumstance becomes known in that. My spouse and I got divorced, and my spouse is still going, but I feel awkward going. Or both of us have stopped going because we both feel awkward telling that story in a community of faith. There can be a number of reasons why it feels awkward and risky to reach out and try to connect with the one or the ones who feel lost or who have gotten lost. But I'm encouraging our folks to do that, to recognize that yes, you might step on a little landmine or embarrass yourself, but it's worth it. It's worth it to take the time to find those who might be feeling lost. Since I got back from sabbatical about seven weeks ago, I've committed myself to chasing down a few people too. I've spent time over the last seven weeks with almost 50 members of this congregation, either one-on-one or in couples, trying to make sure that I have that reconnection with people after having been away, sometimes hearing concerns people have about the church or decisions of the church, sometimes just hearing updates about what's happening in people's lives, sometimes very understandable reasons why they haven't been here in a while. One person I had coffee with a couple of weeks ago said, you know, the truth is I haven't been to church in several months, and except for you, nobody's noticed. Now, to be fair, I imagine that there are people who have noticed. It just feels awkward sometimes to reach out, to take that risk, to kind of get over that social hump or obstacle that gets in the way. And with that in mind, knowing the challenge of what it means to reach out and connect with each other, I spent a little time this week thinking about how to communicate the urgency of seeking out the one who is lost. We had an example from our recent sabbatical trip earlier this year. At one point on the trip, I realized that I had taken my baseball hat that I had been wearing. It had gotten dirty. I'd rinsed it out in the sink, and I'd set it on the balcony of our hotel room to dry out. Unfortunately, I forgot about it. And we got on a plane, and we flew to another country, and as I was unpacking there, I realized I'd left behind my hat. It was lost. But it's a hat. And so I wasn't worried about it. I didn't chase after it. I didn't call the hotel and have them ship it to me. It's a hat. I knew for a couple of bucks I could find a discount clothing store and replace my hat. It wasn't a big deal. However, about a month later, we were in Serengeti National Park in Tanzania. And to set up the story, if you haven't been on a safari before, I want to show you what a safari vehicle looks like. This is a typical vehicle where the roof pops up so that you can stand up inside from your seat and with your binoculars, look out or take pictures. Well, we had both a camera and our iPhones that we were taking pictures with. And one day, I had taken some pictures out the back with my iPhone of a lion we saw. And then we sat back down and we drove across very bumpy uh, gravel roads about a half an hour to get to the visitor center, our next stop. When we got there, I realized that my iPhone was missing. And this mattered. (laughs) It mattered because there were hundreds of photos on there I did not want to lose. It mattered even more importantly because there were plane tickets 
and hotel reservations and other details for future travel that were in that phone, that were stored on that phone, that would be really, really hard to find or replace in some other way. And because of the urgency and the importance of what was lost, there was a desperate and frantic search to find what was lost. For a half an hour, we tore that Jeep apart, every square inch, trying to find that phone. And finally became convinced that it must have dropped out somehow. Maybe from a door that had swung open or I dropped it over the edge on the top. And we began to think about how could we go back and impossibly try to find this phone out in the dirt in the middle of the Serengeti. As a last ditch effort, I stood up to sort of recreate the experience of having last seen and touched the phone. Michael, could you put that photo back up again? If you notice at the back of the Jeep there on your far right-hand side, there's a little luggage rack attached to the top of the vehicle. It's a little grooved metal rack that you can attach luggage or supplies to. And it turns out that those grooves in the rack are exactly the width of an iPhone. <laughs> I mean exactly. And so my phone had slid down into that groove and despite the fact that we were on these bumpy roads, it had held on for the ride. And I can tell you, there was much rejoicing. <laughs> the phone didn't know it was lost, but I knew. And I knew how important it was. And so there was an urgency, a conviction, to do whatever it took to recover what was lost. And I wonder if we could think the same way about one another in a community of faith, too. Because it turns out that chasing after the one who is lost also means something to the 99 who are there remaining in the flock. Biblical scholar Ken Bailey puts it this way, the shepherd's choice to go after the one is critically important to the rest as well. If it would ever be okay to sacrifice one sheep to let one lamb stay lost, then every single person remaining in the flock would suddenly feel insecure. Every other sheep would know that if for some reason they happen to wander off or get distracted or do the wrong thing or are wronged by others, they are expendable and could get left behind. When the shepherd leaves them and takes the great risk required to find the one, the shepherd is actually offering the profoundest security to all of them. It's never a question of worthiness to belong, but a declaration of Christ's diligence that compels us to seek out and welcome one another. Pharisees and tax collectors, saints and sinners, the child and the childlike among us. Those of us who we think are lost and those of us who feel like we are lost. One of the modern confessions of our Presbyterian church is called the Brief Statement of Faith. And it starts so beautifully with these simple words. In life and in death, we belong to God. There's no asterisk next to that we that qualifies who the we is, who's in and who's out. All of us belong to God. All of us are found first and foremost because God has sought out and found us all with that same sense of urgency. So in closing this morning, friends, let me ask you, what do you think? 
What do you think? Could this be an insight for us today from the parable? Could this be the heart of the gospel, the good news for us this morning? That for each of us and for all of us who have known what it means to be lost and known what it means to be found, that Jesus the Good Shepherd has with urgency committed to find each and every one of us. And if I'm truly found by a loving shepherd, I can let go of all the world's toxic language that tries to convince me instead that I'm lost. And if everyone I see around me is also someone who is found, having been sought out by Jesus, well then, hallelujah. Let's gather, let's gather around the table again for a celebratory feast. All of us, recipients of the same saving and amazing grace. And let there be much rejoicing. Amen.